Jesus. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them, but the disciples scolded them. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Carrie. Well, today we are continuing with our Y'all Saints series. In the past two weeks, we have detailed the extraordinary, ordinary holy lives of saints, both old and new. Pastor Chris spoke about North Carolina's own Elizabeth Cotton, and Pastor Meg talked about Julian of Norwich last week. Both of these women show more of what Jesus is like and what it is like to follow him in their time as well as ours. And in order to explore the lives of these saints, we must first plant ourselves in scripture as we did just a moment ago. Today's passage, uh, Mark 10, 13 through 16, is a passage that is very heartwarming, yet it is quite radical. In Mark 10, we find Jesus teaching in the region of Judea, as we find throughout the gospel, Jesus is standing for those with little to no voice in society, blessing, hugging, and loving each of them exactly as they are. And there's plenty of paintings and postcards and children's Bibles and et cetera, et cetera, that depict this passage as a very like, cute instance of Jesus um, gathering children like a mother hen gathers her chicks, which, yes, there is some sort of cute element to it, sure, but I'd also like to argue that this is very, very much a radical thing that Jesus is doing. The disciples' reaction to shooing away these kids would have been seen as a very right thing to do in this culture. Why should Jesus, a renowned teacher of the law, bless these kids if he's not going to get anything in return? They're just kids, right? Isn't that just a waste of time for Jesus to do that? But yet again, we find that Jesus is turning his cultural norms upside down. Instead of letting his disciples shoo away these kids, Jesus gets infuriated at his disciples. And it's no wonder why Jesus gets so infuriated at his disciples. 25 verses earlier in Mark 9, 33 through 37, the disciples had this argument, right? They had an argument about who is the greatest among them. And Jesus asserted, whoever is, wants to be the first must be the last and servant of all. And by way of example, Jesus took a child into his arms and said, whoever welcomes such one child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. But here we are, you know, 25 verses earlier or later, and the disciples have completely forgotten all about this instance. So Jesus rebukes his disciples and reminds them again, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, or anyone uh, who will not receive the kingdom of God like this child will never enter it. And according to this, uh, the Greek original language of this passage, there's two sort of ways to interpret this. First, it could be uh, translated as, you must welcome the kingdom of God like a child would welcome it. So you have to be childlike to do it. Or you could read it in another way. Um, you could read it as, you must welcome the kingdom of God just as eagerly as you would welcome a child into your own home. 
Whichever way you want to interpret it, either that the kingdom of God must be experienced like a child or that it is experienced through welcoming a child, I argue that no one in this whole world encapsulates both translations as well as Mr. Rogers. And yes, that Mr. Rogers with the red cardigans who played with puppets and said, won't you be my neighbor? Fred McFeely Rogers was born on March 20th, 1928 to Nancy McFeely Rogers and James Hillis Rogers, a wealthy Presbyterian couple living in the town of Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Raised in the Presbyterian tradition, Fred came to value a lot of things as a young child. He learned hard work, commitment to one's family, and service to each and every human being. He learned these values from his tradition, yes, but especially from his mother, Nancy Rogers. Nancy engaged Fred throughout his childhood in meaningful conversations and treated those conversations as if he was an adult, that he could understand these things that she was telling him. It was his mother who said something like this, look for the helpers, you will always find those who are helping. Maybe you've seen this, I've seen this plenty of times on Facebook or Instagram whenever there's been a tragedy, I always see that quote floating by, and that's from his mother. Maxwell King, who wrote um, a biography called The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers, um, says about Nancy, uh, she loved to talk, and she loved to talk to Fred. So that's, that, that thing, though, it's talk to Fred, never to Fred, but actually with Fred. Fred Rogers, however, was often ill all throughout his childhood, riddled with illness after illness, including scarlet fever. Fred spent most of his childhood in quarantine, and as a result, he missed school frequently, and not only this, but he was also overweight and often bullied for it. Mr. Rogers later admitted in his life that when he was bullied, he resented a lot of that pain and even resented those kids that bullied him so harshly. But he went on to say that I didn't know it was all right to feel those things. He was scared to use words. He didn't know if he was able to feel this anger that he felt, especially at other people. And so he was scared, honestly, to tell people he was upset. And so music became his sort of way to show his emotions. In some way, it became his first language. Later in life, he said there's something very mystical and wonderful about how music can touch us. Fred Rogers, a lonely, sickly boy who struggled with his weight, could have grown up into a life of bitterness. But instead, he grew up into an inquisitive young man and experienced a call to ministry. He um, assumed that his calling would look like this, like a typical pastoral career. So after his senior year, he was just set to go to you know, seminary, just like that. But then his uh, senior year, yes, that's him sleeping. I found that picture so cute. <laughs> um, during his senior year, he saw television for the first time, and he hated it. He absolutely hated this abomination. He went on to say that I went into television because I hated it so. And I thought in some way it could use this fabulous instrument to nurture those who would watch and listen. So for his graduate education, Mr. Rogers enrolled into Pittsburgh Theological Seminary 
And at the time, he continued to be interested, deeply interested, in children's television programming. Because similar to the time of Jesus, television networks wanted little or nothing to do with kids. There was nothing glamorous about putting on a kid's show. There was nothing remarkable or worthy of doing that. But Fred Rogers knew that the kingdom of God is a neighborhood, a neighborhood full of mischievous and slobbering toddlers. He realized that TV, something he honestly really hated, could be used for the benefit of children. So while he split his time with seminary work, he also started working as a program manager at the local Pittsburgh Public um, Broadcasting Station. It's WQED, and he started that in 1953. So after seminary, he was ordained, and he had a very interesting ordination title. He was called a, uh, what was it called? Yes, a children's minister on television. It was one of the first of its kind in the Presbyterian tradition, or really most traditions anyhow. And he once called his ministry as the broadcasting of grace through the land. And before I transition into my sermon to tell you more about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, maybe the thing you mainly know him about, I really want you to be reminded that Fred Rogers was as much as a minister as he was a television icon. He worked with kids and adults in church settings, and he would often preach at Pittsburgh's Sixth Presbyterian Church, it was a congregation known for its sexual and racial inclusivity. And so uh, after seminary, uh, he spent a few more years in Canada getting started um, in television. And then he returned to Pittsburgh, um, nearby his hometown, and he began the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Series, which lasted over 30 years. On this show, he would use puppets and put into song what children and adults, too, needed to hear. He could have easily made this a uh, simple TV show. This really could have been a flashy show of violence, crude humor, and predictable plot lines. That could have been done so easily. But Mr. Rogers felt like he had a deep, God-given responsibility to help children grow in healthy ways. And so to fulfill this uh, responsibility he had, he studied at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Children Development. Uh, this school was home to some of the most famous psychologists like Eric Erickson and Benjamin Spock and a few others. Uh, Mr. Rogers eventually met with children's psychologist Dr. Margaret McFarland. And in these meetings with Dr. McFarland, Fred would just lean in and take notes and listen to every single thing she had to say about the development of children. And it was especially due to this friendship he had with this world-renowned psychologist that instead of bombarding children with fast cartoons or violence, he talked about really, really difficult topics. For example, Mr. Rogers casually just brought up uh, border control and stubbornness. In one of his episodes, one of his puppets, King Friday the 13th, built a wall around his castle and refusing to let anyone in or he'll evoke violence. And this episode wasn't like years in. He wasn't building up to such a monument, you know, like serious episode. This was in the first week of starting the series. This was the, like the second episode of the series and he was already talking about border control and about stubbornness and about policymaking. I mean, just fascinating stuff. 
And then there's another example that came along not all long after, I think a year into it. During a just seemingly normal episode, one of his puppets, Daniel Tiger, which I'm sure a lot of you guys know because of the reboot of the Daniel Tiger series, uh, but Daniel Tiger asked this question, what is assassination? A profound, a profound question to ask and hear on an 8 a.m. morning TV show. This was in the wake of June 1968 with the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And uh, Mr. Rogers also spoke about many other things, war, divorce, nuclear stockpiling, and he even spent a whole week talking about death and grief. A whole week, not just one episode. Again, just profound stuff to hear at eight in the morning with your kids. And lastly, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but one thing that also struck me was, it was his last appearance on TV. He had addressed the national neighborhood in the wake of 9-11. In this episode, he called his audience, both children, adults, and children who had grown into parents, <laughs> um, and said that we are called to be tikkun olam, which in Hebrew means repairs of creation. I could go on and on and on, but I think you get the picture. Again, profound stuff to be hearing on a so-called just easy kids TV show. His ability to uh, talk about these things, though, didn't necessarily come from his own strength. Um, he never said, you know, I'm the best, so I can be able to do this. Instead, he contributed much of his show's success and his ability to talk about these things due to his prayer life. Fred Rogers had a very strict way of life, which I admire so much. By 5.30 a.m., which I cannot imagine, but by 5.30 a.m., he would be already awake for prayer, reflection, and then Bible reading. He kept a long list of names, too. Each one he would pray for if they asked them um, just by name. He would name them and pray for them individually. He would uh, read a lot of Christian authors, and some of the authors that some of us might know here, actually. Um, while I was researching this week, I was so excited and surprised to know that one of his favorite authors is Henry Nouwen. Um, if you don't know Henry Nouwen, he is fantastic. Um, Henry Nouwen is a Dutch Catholic author who has written amazing books like The Wounded Healer and also The Return of the Prodigal Son. I mean, you can tell pretty much by both of the writings how similar they were. And Fred is not only an admirer of Nowen, but they were very, very close friends all throughout their lives and kindred spirits too. They spent time together in person and even talked on the phone quite regularly, one giving advice to the other and one giving advice back. It was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful friendship. And after his morning prayer though, Mr. Rogers' sort of prayer life didn't just end right there. Um, he continued to pray into his daily swim, which he would go every day into the daily swim. And before diving into the pool, he would sing out loud, but not too loudly, Yubi Latte Deo. This was a song that Henry Nouwen had taught him. It goes, Yubi Latte Deo, Yubi Latte Deo, Alleluia, which means rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, Hallelujah. And he would sing this quietly while diving in and back and forth. And even before the broadcasting of each episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, 
to millions of children, he would spend a moment and recite the same short prayer as he always would. He would say, let some that is heard be thine. He would pray. Above all, it wasn't necessarily the topics that he talked about. It was how he acted and sang about neighborly love. He acted in neighborly love in a multitude of ways. For instance, Mr. Rogers fought against racism in a subtle yet provocative way. In May of 1969, the American audience witnessed as Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens, who was a black police officer played by Francois Clemens, and they washed their feet together in a small plastic swimming pool. For us, that might just seem regular, maybe just a little interesting, but during that time, black people could not swim along whites in many of these public areas. It was a very segregated um, time. And this was a subtle yet radical statement for them to do this, a very radical statement. And I can't help but see this and also be reminded of the time when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Again, just like one thing after another after another he is speaking about. And although he acted out of neighborly love all the time, such as this and so many more instances, he also sang about neighborly love too. Um, he began and ended his show with two phrases that I think just perfectly sum up his neighborly theology. Phrases like, I like you just the way you are, and the classic, Won't You Be My Neighbor? The theme song, Won't You Be My Neighbor, was Mr. Rogers' iconic invitation at the beginning of each show. In her biography, um, I think, Exactly As You Are, The Life and Faith of Mr. Rogers, Biographer Shea Tuttle writes this. When Mr. Rogers calls his viewers neighbors, when he hosted us in his neighborhood over 30 years ago, he was playing out his own greatest parable, calling us gently but firmly into lives of mercy and care for one another. Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, recognized that his call was a difficult one, though, to call yourselves and his whole audience into a life of mercy. He knew that we would fail, and even he would fail at this calling, at being a good neighbor sometimes. He knew that he was up against a lot of things. He knew that his message was competing against cultural norms of fear, competition, and of scarcity. And these cultural norms existed then, and they exist now, definitely, and if you don't believe me, you can take a look at the news for yourself, and it's filled with story after story, drenched in fear, competition, and scarcity. But Mr. Rogers reminds us today that this morning, today, right now, that the kingdom of God is a peaceful, cooperative, and plentiful neighborhood. When the kingdom of God and this world collide, we can't react necessarily by huddling to our Christian like-minded people and trying to shelter us from the world. That's not what good neighbor does, right? Nor does this mean that we should just coexist with each other, you know, just put our differences aside and just chill. <laughs> it's more than that. Instead, the kingdom of God must implore us to build bridges of mercy across the divides and to love one another 
exactly as they are. And uh, that brings me to the uh, second catchphrase of his. At the end of every episode, he would say it the same way he, as he always did. I love the repetition he had often, just like liturgy. He would say, you made this day a very special day just by you being you. And I like you just the way you are. He actually learned this line from his grandfather, McFeely, as a child. He would always tell him, I like you just the way you are. And that was something that he continued throughout his life, learning from his grandpa. And it's also at the very heart of what Mr. Rogers understood Christianity to be. He said, Christianity to me is a matter of accepting people as we are. Jesus certainly wasn't concerned about people's stations in life or what they looked like or whether they were perfect in behavior or feeling. How often in the New Testament we read Jesus' empathy for those people who felt their lives are owned to be imperfect and the marvelous surprise and joy when they felt his great acceptance. This reminds me so much of our Mark passage that I just read earlier, or Gary read too. When I picture Jesus in this passage, uh, in this, you know, blessing these kids, I can't help but imagine a little red sweater over Jesus as these kids push and shove each other, running up to him to see who gets him first. I mean, Jesus cherished and loved in each child that approached him, very much as we remember Mr. Rogers to do so. And he loved them and approached them and um, cherished them regardless of what they could offer or if they could offer anything or who they would grow up to be. Because Jesus loved them for who they were at that exact moment. Children. And they did not have to pretend to be anything else. Mr. Rogers calls this kind of love as a sacred experience. He explains, when we look at what's best in a person we happen to be with at this moment, we're doing what God does. So in appreciating our neighbor, we're appreciating something truly sacred. I think there is so much to learn from the life of Mr. Rogers. He was a musician, a television icon, a loving husband and father, and a profound minister. All of this, all of this, and yet, believe it or not, Fred Rogers was not a perfect saint. I know, it's hard to believe, at least for me. (laughs) His wife, Joanne, explained how when Fred was much younger, um, he was very timid. He was very unsure of himself. This reminds me of his beloved puppet, Daniel Tiger, who was very unsure and worried. But as time progressed, he and you know, his show grew in success and his popularity skyrocketed. He slowly became another puppet of his, King Friday the 13th, who was a gruff, grumpy, but determined ruler who honestly hated change. On and off the set of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Fred could be pretty controlling and uh, about things and how they should be run in his neighborhood. Uh, Most of this came from a good place, I think. He had a clear vision and he had a correct script and he wanted people to follow their lines. But what might surprise a lot of us is that 
the thing that Mr. Rogers perhaps struggled with most was anger and conflict. As I mentioned earlier, he experienced resentment as a child, and this sort of resentment had actually carried out throughout his entire life in different areas. Because even though he talked a lot on his show about anger management and how to feel your feelings, he suffered and didn't always show the most nice cooperation to his staff. He was also very aggressive towards people at times. Mr. Rogers' um, anger issues might surprise us, um, but this wasn't a thing that he was completely unaware about. He knew about this, about himself. Even as a child, he understood this until his death. He knew about it, and he was deeply troubled by this flaw until the very end of his life. And towards the end of his life, he became very ill from his battle with cancer. The doctors had decided to place him in his home in Pittsburgh where he could feel most comfortable and he could speak to his wife and be just in the comfort in his home for the last few days he had. And there he spoke often with his wife, Joanne, often about heaven and hell. And just as he was reading from Matthew 25, 31 through 46, this passage describes uh, the last judgment. Um, and it is the idea that Jesus will separate the good sheep from the bad goats. And with a soft, brittle, dying voice, Fred asked his wife, am I a sheep? In other words, will I make it to heaven? And those were the final words of Mr. Rogers. With his wife at his side, he fell into a coma and died. Those last words are haunting. Throughout his life, he would freely show grace and forgiveness to others, but at the end, he wondered if he could step into that grace for himself. I think it's um, important to highlight the uh, problems and flaws of Mr. Rogers um, with his anger and doubt. Because too often when we hear the word saint, we conjure up this image of someone so holy that we can't imagine living that way ourselves. But for Fred Rogers, being special means that you don't ever have to do anything to be sensational, um, or you don't ever have to do anything sensational uh, for people to love you. The kingdom of God is a neighborhood made up of impressive and unimpressive saints that have had a lifelong battles with greed, envy, addiction, lust, and yes, even anger. And so therefore, whatever sentimentalities you might have tied with Mr. Rogers, Fred was not a saint in some unattainable way. He was a saint in the same way that you and I are saints. And we say yes to the slow work that God has called us to have. And when we choose to love our neighbors as ourselves. <laughs>